What we're thinking about today and next week is this value statement uh, that's going to be up on the screen here, reaching out beyond ourselves in local and global mission. When, when Trinity started, ooh, technically about three years ago, we didn't start meeting on Sundays as a church then, but we were meeting to pray to see if, if maybe a church would start. And one of the things that we decided very, very early on was that we did not want to be another church that was kind of uh, heading towards being in a rut. Not, not to say that others are, but it's entirely possible knowing us that we could get there. And so we said, no, let's not do that. Let's, instead of being a tradition-driven church or a church that's controlled by the opinion of you know, one or two key people, let's be a church that's driven by values. And so we tried to uh, write a set of values out that what we think would reflect God's values. And so we've got values in terms of loving God, values in terms of loving one another, values in terms of loving others. And then three times a year, we take a mini-series and we focus in on one of those groups of values or one of those values in particular. And this one up on the screen is the last one in the list. So there's 11 of them. I'd encourage you to take a look on the website sometime. Uh, That's probably the easiest place to find them or in the church handbook. There's another edition coming soon. Uh, And really pray through them. Those are a statement, really, of what we're saying. We want to be this kind of a church. We think that this kind of a church is is what would please God. And so I'd encourage you to read through them, pray through them, evaluate how we're doing, where you see us falling short, which inevitably we are. Uh, Do what you can to, to make the change, be the difference, you know, do something that would help the kind of corporate ethos of the church, because we want to be a church that, that reflects those values that are God's values and a church that is growing and moving towards them. There's always more to learn, always more to do uh, on that. So we're going to think about this one, reaching out beyond ourselves in local and global mission today and next Sunday. So today we'll focus a little bit more locally. Next week we'll focus a bit more globally, but really the two work together. Reaching out beyond ourselves. That's a deliberate phrase, and it's actually quite a countercultural idea. It's not something that people will naturally do. It's not something that we would naturally do. If you think about it, uh, we are naturally quite self-concerned and self-focused, and, and self tends to be at the center of our thinking. And so to reach out beyond ourselves is actually quite a radical idea. But it's an idea that is at the very heart of Christianity, If you think about it, uh, the very nature of who God is, is that he is a God who reaches out beyond himself. If he didn't, there would be nothing, and we would not be here celebrating what he's done for us. We say the vision of Trinity Chippenham is to be transformed, for all to be transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. And what we mean by that is that, that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, that God who is three in one is, is completely other-centered. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father. God the Father and the Son uh, by the Spirit loving beyond Himself. It gets a little bit complicated on the pronouns, but, but God is a God who gives, a God who reaches out, not a God who grabs. And because that's the kind of God that He is, a giving, overflowing, we sang a fountain of goodness 
That's a description of what God's like. Is the goodness just seems to keep pouring out of him. Because that's the kind of God he is. He created a creation that was originally absolutely perfect. And it was growing and bubbling over and, and vibrant and life-giving and uh, generative. Is that a word? I made that up maybe. But it's, you know, multiplicational, uh, where the trees have fruit and the fruit grow trees and the trees grow fruit and animals meet animals and fall in love with animals and have baby animals. And the whole of creation was this perfect design of really representing that reaching outness of God. And then we messed it up. Humans made uh, the fatal error of saying, you know what, we don't want God to be God. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. And instead of focusing outwards, instead of being people who loved God and loved one another, that first human couple started us down the path that we're all on of being me lovers, loving ourselves, of being self-concerned, self-focused, self-promotional, self-obsessed, and it's all messed up. And the, the life of the, the love of God is somehow separated. It's somehow kind of distant and, and, and unknown. And we live in a world that's corrupted and broken. And people are lonely. And there's death. And there's, there's hideous things all around us. And, and we're living in a mess. But, but God, because of the kind of God that he is, a reaching out God, reached out to us by sending Jesus. And Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world. He became one of us. Like Mike said, he, the God-man, he became man, fully man, to be one of us and to ultimately give himself as an act of love for us, to go all the way to the cross of Calvary where he died a death that he did not deserve to die in order to pay the price for our sin and to win our hearts back to God. And so here we are in this world, all kind of self-focused and self-concerned and self-promotional, and then we encounter the, the wonder of a God who is a reaching out kind of God. And that love is presented to us, and many of us here have gone, wow, if, if you love me that much, then I'm going to entrust myself to you. If you love me enough to die for me, that's more than I would do for me, I'm, I'm yours, I am, I am on your team, I'm in your family, whatever you're offering, I want it. And we're part of God's family, if you like, the embrace of the Trinity has embraced us, undeserving sinners. And here we are in a world full of people who don't know that. Full of people who, if they don't encounter that love and if they're not drawn into the love of God, if they are not drawn to a point where they entrust themselves to Him and ask Him to forgive them and, and ask Him to make them part of their family, if they don't get there, then the destiny, the destination is horrible. The whole world is heading for a lost eternity. The whole world is heading for a day when they will be judged by the standards that none of us have lived up to. And the only people who have hope in anticipation of that judgment, any hope of avoiding hell and having life forever, are those of us who have accepted that we cannot fix the problem, that we cannot save ourselves, that the answer does not lie within us, but it's been given to us because of the kind of God that God is. So that's what we're here thinking about 
the kind of, wow, isn't it amazing what we've got? But there's so many that don't know that. The world is still so messed up. Uh, the, the, the reality is so dark and so bleak. And so if that's the kind of God that we have, and if we know him and love him, then it makes sense that one of our core values will be to reach out beyond ourselves, both locally and globally, if you like, to join in his mission. Isn't it amazing that, that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He, he promised to do something, and for the last 2,000 years, he's been doing it. And even as we sit here right now, right across the whole planet, there are people who are trusting Christ and becoming part of the family. Right across the planet, there are people who are hearing the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, and they're saying for the first time, okay, I want to be part of that. I, I've got no hope in myself. My hope is all in Christ. And every single day, every hour, people are being plucked from the enemy's hands and brought into the kingdom of light as the Bible describes it. Isn't that an amazing thought? It's happening. God is doing it. And he invites us to be part of that mission. And he's doing it in Chippenham as well. Not just in far off places, but he's at work behind front doors all across this town. And he invites us to join him in that mission. I want us to look at a passage uh, this afternoon, and we'll come back to it again next week, that's really important for what we're talking about. Because if we're thinking about reaching out beyond ourselves, who is it that we're supposed to reach out to? And in a sense, that was a question that Jesus was asked in Luke's gospel. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 10, which I'm hoping is page 869, if anyone can confirm that, that would be great. If it's not, it's near there. 869, thanks, Rich. So page 869, Luke chapter 10. And there's little numbers there, verse numbers. There's, uh, you come down to verse 25, and it should have a title uh, that says, The Parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably are already thinking, oh, I know this one. I've heard this before. But this is a really important story, and it's really important that A, we understand it in its kind of simple sense, but B, we understand it in its fullness because I'm, I'm afraid that often we just take it at a superficial level and we miss out on something massively important. So let's look at it. Luke 10, verse 25. Just read a few verses just to get, it, get us going before the story starts. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up uh, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, that's Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Let's just pause there for a second. It's actually quite a strange question, isn't it? What must I do to inherit? That doesn't really make any sense. Eventually, my parents, I presume, are going to die, and I'm hoping, I'm not really thinking about it, to be honest, but I'm hoping or assuming that they haven't cut me out of their will for anything. At least they haven't mentioned it. Okay, and so when that day finally comes, and hopefully it doesn't, but when that day comes, I will then eventually be 
however that whole thing works, some of you understand that very well, eventually come to the reading of the will and I will inherit something. At that point, I'm not going to say, now what did I do for this? What did I do to get this? That makes no sense. You don't do anything. You just get when someone dies. That's the way inheritance works, isn't it? The best kind, I suppose, is when someone you don't know dies and then you get something because then there's no sadness and you just get the blessing of you know, a piano or something. But, but there's a death and then there's an inheritance. It's not do, earn, it's death, receive. But this lawyer tests Jesus and asks him, what must I do? So Jesus turns it back on him and says, okay, you tell me. What does the law say? And he gives an excellent answer. He quotes from Deuteronomy 5. He quotes from Leviticus. He says, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, great, perfect, go, go for it, do that. Now, I don't think Jesus is thinking at that point, I've answered it, that's what you do. I think he, in a sense, is tapping into the silliness of the question because loving God and loving neighbor is really hard to measure. Like, how do I know I've ever done that? Isn't love something deeper than what I do? Isn't it something inside me? And and it should stir all sorts of questions. And Jesus just says, okay, off you go. And the man responds to him. And I think if he'd have stopped in verse 28, he was doing fine. Jesus had just affirmed him. But then in verse 29, it says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he's doing fine in as much as Jesus has just said, yeah, that's a good answer. But he wants to make sure that he's living up to the standard. And that phrase, desiring to justify himself, should make us feel a bit awkward. Hang on a second. We're talking about loving God and loving others. And what's his concern? Self. That's a problem, right? Okay, go love God and love others. Just do that perfectly and you'll live. Great, thank you. Oh, now, I'm a bit concerned about me. I've got a question. Well, then you're not loving God and loving others. You see the tension? You see, here's a a fallen man in his sin who's completely self-concerned. And the moment he's thinking or told to love God and love others, he can't help but think of himself. Now, it's not a good question. It's not a good approach to to desire to justify yourself, but it's an interesting question because what he's saying is, who am I supposed to love then? And I think that's a question that we can ask even without desiring to justify ourselves. Let's give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we are in a good place and our hearts are in the right place and we love God and we want to love others. We could ask that same question, Lord, who is my neighbor Who should we be reaching out to? And that's a question that we as elders in this church have been asking ourselves, but we would like us as a community to ask ourselves and to ask God, who should we be reaching out to? Forty-odd thousand people in Chippen, and Lord, who? Who can we love? There's people in the surrounding area. Some of us work in other places and interact with people in other towns, and we've got family and so on. Lord, who can we reach out to? Who can we love? It's a good question. And so whether your motive is to justify yourself, which is a problem, or a genuine desire to love others, which is what we're talking about, the question stands, and Jesus' answer, I think, is incredibly helpful. He, He answers by telling a story. 
And the story begins in verse 30, and it's a story of a man, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell among robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, and they left, leaving him half dead. Really simple, right? Jerusalem to Jericho is about a 17-mile journey. It's a horrible journey. It's, it's baking hot. You're going from uh, a couple of thousand, 1,800 feet above sea level, going down to the lowest place on earth. Under the, the Middle Eastern sun, it's, it's a kind of a, an oppressive journey, and it's a, a frightening one because it was a place where robbers would take advantage of travelers. They'd jump them and beat them and take their stuff and and they'd be gone, and there's no police, there's no traffic cameras. They, you're in trouble if you fell among robbers on that road. And so when Jesus told this story, the, the person, the lawyer hearing the story would have said, oh, I can totally picture that, poor chap. Sounds terrible. And, it, and, and the detail is quite interesting. He's traveling down, away from Jerusalem, down towards Jericho. They've beaten him, they've stripped him, they've taken away all identifiers of who he could be. You wouldn't know if he's Jewish or Gentile, which becomes important later. They've left him half dead, which I presume means unconscious. He's in trouble under the baking sun, exposed to the elements. This man is in real dire need. This isn't a sprained ankle in a corridor. This is somebody whose life is ebbing away. And then some people pass by. They come down the road, and we're told that they come down the road, same direction, at least the first one. And the first two of them are what we might call the likely-to-care religious types. The likely-to-care religious types come down the road, but they don't care for the man. They care for themselves. In that time, religious types would be expected to care. I think in our day, it's reversed. People today assume the worst. If you're a religious type, you're probably a fraud and a hypocrite and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, kind of different culture, different context. But it's interesting that these two men who we would hope would care for this individual left lying in a pool of blood beside the road, these two men don't care for him. The first one's a priest. He would have been almost certainly on the back of an animal of some sort, a donkey or a mule or something. He wouldn't be walking. He's a significant person. And he comes along and he sees the man and he passes by. And then there's a Levite and he could be walking, could be on an animal, but he passes by as well. And we don't know what's going on inside of them. We don't know what their thinking is. Maybe, uh, just to speculate, maybe the priest has been up in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks. They did these two-week shifts in the temple. And he's been busy pouring out oil and wine and all the different things that he does in the, the kind of the temple rituals. And he's been doing that for a couple of weeks. And his shift is over and he's heading home and he wants to be home with family. And as he's heading home, he sees this body lying there and he doesn't know if the man's dead or alive. He doesn't know if the man's Jewish or Gentile. And maybe inside of him, he processes the situation and and decides it's not worth the risk. I mean, if he goes up to him and touches him, and it turns out that he's dead, or if he dies while he's caring for him, then he will have touched a dead body, and he will be unclean. And if that happened, then, oh, dear, he'd have to go back to Jerusalem and go through all the purification rites and offer sacrifices, and that's just inconvenient, and actually it's 
potentially embarrassing. I mean, what would the other priests think if I'm back already impure? Like, they're going to wonder what I've been up to on my journey home. And, and so all these things may be processing through his mind. Maybe he thinks he's too important. Or he's above someone like that. He probably deserves what he got. Uh, who knows what's going through his mind? I don't know. But I do know that we're capable of those kind of thoughts. How will this look if I care for this person? How will this come across to others if I'm seen with dirty hands? How, how will this be if this inconveniences me and stops me from doing my important stuff? Maybe for the Levite, he was walking down the road and he was thinking, I haven't got a few weeks off. I've got places to be at. I've got work to do. I'm a busy person. I just don't have time to stop. And all of the inconvenience. And so whatever the motive, whatever the thinking, these two likely to care people cared more for themselves than the person presented to them. And I know myself that I'm very capable of that too. I'm very capable of saying it's not convenient, I don't have time. It's not going to look good. What about my reputation? They pass by. And then we're told about a third individual. And the third individual, down in verse, uh, where are we, 33, is an unlikely to care foreigner. So the likely to care religious types don't care. They cared only for themselves. The unlikely to care foreigner cared. It's a Samaritan. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They were kind of sworn enemies. And, and as soon as a Samaritan enters the story, everyone listening would recoil. Oh, no, he's probably going to kick him or something. But instead, we get this incredible presentation of what the Samaritan does. He came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That's a shocking finish to the story. In fact, just to make sure that we get that, we then hear what happens in a follow-up. Verse 36, Jesus asks the man who had questioned him in the first place, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice that he cannot say the word Samaritan. It's like the word just sticks in his throat. <clears> throat> the one who showed him mercy. That's all he can say. Just, I suppose that one. You see, the, this, this lawyer who wants to love God and love neighbors actually is exposed even by the story. He hates Samaritans and he can't say the word. And Jesus has made the Samaritan the hero and he said to him, you go and you do likewise. So very simply then, what is this story teaching us? Who is my neighbor? Who is it that I'm supposed to reach out to in love? I suppose you could put it this way, that we are to reach out to love people that we see are in need. People that we can help. So reach out in love to help people that we see are in need. People that we are in a position to help. So it's not saying you have to help everyone on the planet because we're not able to do that. 
But when we see someone, when we see something, a situation, and we are in a position to be able to help it, reach out there, love there. What does that look like in real terms for us? Well, think about what a neighbor may be according to this story. A neighbor may be somebody unknown. We think neighbor and, you know, the people who live either side, uh, we think of an Australian soap opera, we think of various things. But we don't probably think of somebody lying in a pool of blood as a neighbor. But actually, the people we see in need may be people that are unknown to us. They may be people who are unfriendly to us. If you see somebody lying on the floor, there's always a risk that you help them and they are agitated, drunk, aggressive. Maybe even a neighbor in a house can be very antagonistic when you offer to love and care. Love them anyway. A neighbor may be unknown. A neighbor may be unfriendly. A neighbor may be unattractive. Think about that. This, this guy's lying there naked, you know, with the blood kind of encrusted on him. Nothing nice about that. You don't want to, you know, eagerly, willingly go up and touch. But that's what the reality is, that the kind of people or the kind of life situations of people that are in need are often very unattractive situations. There may be smells involved. There may be awkwardnesses involved. There may be a lack of, of gratitude or a lack of politeness or a lack of uh, just things that you take for granted. And loving people can sometimes be really difficult because they just aren't, you know, the dream neighbors that you'd love to help, the ones that might lend you their Porsche. Actually, the people that we help may be profoundly unattractive. And the people that we help may be completely unrewarding. They may spurn us. They may turn on us. They may, after giving so much time and effort and energy and care and concern, they may treat us as if we're their enemy. They may steal from us. There's a whole host of things that can happen when we start reaching out and loving people. That's the nature of loving your neighbor. And so if it's difficult, if it's not as convenient and as nice as, you know, helping somebody across the road or, or, or delivering, you know, a package to a neighbor because they weren't in when the postman came. If it's actually something a bit more than that, then what's it going to take? To put it another way, what is it going to take for us to reach out in local mission as a church community? What does it mean to love our neighbors? I think it takes four things. Firstly, it takes proximity. That is, it takes being near them. This Samaritan helped this guy on the road because he saw him. It wasn't, you know, there may have been thousands of Samaritans that were in a kind of a red cross ready to come and help, but they weren't there. This guy was there. And sometimes our problem as Christians is that we're not there where people are. That's one of the things that, that has kind of challenged us as a church is to say, okay, hang on a second. Let's make sure that we can get around people, get close to people. Let's not just fill our schedule totally with churchy stuff so that we're always busy with church meetings. Let's have space in our schedule so that we can get around people that don't know Jesus. A few years ago, um, we moved from America to England and I knew that I needed to do something to, to 
do something sporty, something to get fit a little bit, because I didn't want to just, you know, not. So I wanted to find something to do, and I thought, okay, I want to do something that I enjoy, but actually, I, I want to do something where I can get around people, because I preach in churches, and I, I you know, with my family, and I'm with Christians here, and Christians there, and at conferences. I need to be around people that don't know Jesus, and so I made the choice of saying, okay, I'm going to join a, a class, a martial arts class. I'm going to do it every week. Part of the reason is I just want to be around people that don't know Jesus. And it wasn't like instant fireworks, like, whoa, check that out. It was just a kind of a, a thing. It was a deliberate choice. Melanie and I years ago took a Spanish class. We could tell you stories about that Spanish class because it was hilarious. But we wanted to get around people that didn't know Jesus. Years later... God was at work in the lives of a couple of people and they happened to go to that martial arts class too. And it wasn't that I was preaching or or anything like that, but God was at work and I had the privilege, we had the privilege of being part of them coming to know Jesus. But proximity matters. And maybe some of us need to take stock and say, you know what, I don't work with people that I can interact with all the time or Uh, I don't have non-Christian family in my home. Uh, Some of us need to make a deliberate step to get around some people that don't know Jesus. Join a class. uh, Take up a new hobby. There's space in the schedule to do it. Proximity is important. Second of the four things that we need if we're going to love our neighbors as well as proximity is time. It takes time to love people. It takes time to have conversations. It takes time for those conversations to go past the superficial, doesn't it? It takes time for things to happen in their lives so that they say to you, hey, I've got a question. Why did God allow this to happen? It may take months for that conversation. But again, we've deliberately said as a church, let's not have a schedule that is packed with church stuff. Meetings, morning, afternoon, evening on Sunday, and during the week, something for one member of the family every evening just to tie up every family. We said, no, let's not do that. Let's keep it simple. We're just going to have three things. There's other things that happen as bonus material, but there's three things that are kind of core Trinity Chippenham things to be involved in. There's church on Sunday, like today. There's life group during the week, one evening. And then the third thing is something I've never seen anywhere else. We call it free to connect. It means that we haven't put a third thing in the schedule. And we're trying to guard the schedule so that you have space to spend time with family because that's important, to spend time with each other because that's important. But don't miss the other thing, to spend time with people that don't know how much God loves them, to do a hobby, to... Invite your neighbors around for a barbecue. Whatever your strategy is, get around people and love them because that's the kind of God that we have, a reaching out kind of a God. And you might say, well, I, I get tongue-tied. I don't know what to say. Well, that's okay. Maybe you're you know, kind of mean with a hamburger. You know how to do the seasoning really well. Do the, do the burger thing. Do the, do the barbecue and invite someone over and then invite someone from church who you know is good at talking about Jesus and get them together. Just doing the, the meat might be the key thing that's happening to make these people connect. But let's be deliberate about it. Let's, let's look for ways to put ourselves alongside people and then to look up to heaven and go, God, I don't know what I'm doing. Help, help, help. I'm going to say something stupid. And watch him work despite us. It takes proximity. It takes time. It takes resource. 
This Samaritan gave money. He gave time. He, he had to get his donkey dirty. I mean, it was a big deal what he did. And it's going to take resources to love people. Jesus is saying, go do that. You see, if we're going to be a community that, that reach out to the people that we see are in need, then we need to have our eyes open and we need to say, God, show us who we can help. The Syrian refugees is a, is a great example of that. But there's going to be more. There's going to be others. Let's be thinking and praying and asking God to show us. Because here's my dream. And I was chatting with someone this week and they kind of phrased it almost the same way that I was thinking. That the dream that we as a community would be sacrificially and extravagantly generous. Wouldn't that be cool? Sacrificially and extravagantly generous with everything that we've got. Just giving away, caring, loving because of the kind of God that we have. And you see, that brings me to the most important point that I want to finish with. If we're going to be that kind of community, it's going to take proximity, it's going to take time, it's going to take resources, but there's a fourth thing that we need. You see, Jesus in this story is not saying, be nice to people. That's kind of like Aesop's fables or something. Anyone can say that. That's like, you know, Oprah, be nice to people and, you know, pay it forward and all that stuff. Jesus isn't just saying, be nice. He's saying, love your neighbor with the kind of love with which you've been loved, the God kind of love. You see, what that Samaritan did in that story goes way above and beyond what would make sense in human terms. He didn't just give a bit. He didn't just say, hang on, I've got some loose change, mate. There you go. He gave and he gave and he gave sacrificially and extravagantly generously. He touched the guy. He he poured out precious oil onto him to soften the hardened blood. And he poured out precious wine as a sort of antiseptic to heal the wounds. And he lifted him up onto his animal. And then he humbled himself and led the animal like he was the servant. And... We've got to get rid of this travelodge idea. There's no travelodge between Jerusalem and Jericho. Never has been. I would say 99% likely he led him right the way into Jericho. Just think about how dangerous that would be. A Samaritan leading a naked Jew who's beaten and left for dead on the back of his donkey, leading him into the town. I mean, if he's going to do that, he's just going to take him surely to the inn and kind of leave some money there, knock on the door and flee into the darkness. But no, he doesn't. He stays with him and he cares for him and he gives money and he says, hey, I'm coming back. He might as well give his credit card and his driving license. He's saying, I'm the guy that's going to take care of this guy. That is an incredibly sacrificial thing to do. How would you feel if you're Jewish in Jericho? And a Samaritan brings a half-dead Jew into town. Maybe he's being nice. Maybe he's covering for himself. Maybe that Samaritan was risking his own life to rescue that man. And if he was, then he's giving us a glimpse of the kind of love that God wants us to love others with. A kind of love that we cannot generate. A kind of love that is his love. Remember, this is not be nice to people. This is love your neighbor as God has first loved you. And so if we're going to get around people and spend time with people and share resource with people, we've got to recognize that the ultimate drive in all of it can only come if we know God's love first. 
It's not that we go out with eyes open just looking for who we can love. More than that, we go out with eyes open looking for who we can love with our eyes fixed on God's love revealed on the cross. Because that is, that is love, isn't it? That is sacrificial, extravagantly generous love. The kind of love that doesn't just risk death, but dies. Laying down his life for people he didn't previously know, for people that didn't deserve his help, for people that could not help themselves. Jesus went all the way to the cross and he poured out his own life for us. And as we look to him, May our hearts be so stirred by his love that then like a fountain of goodness, it can spill out from us as a community to the people that we see, people in need, people whose need we can help to meet. Jesus doesn't say, just be nice, like a good Samaritan. Jesus says, love your neighbor in the same way that you've first been loved by God.